Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. <laughs> 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation, we recognise their unceded sovereignty. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast. Good morning. Um, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan, and George, who is panelling today. <laughs> Baptism of Fire. Yes, yes. We just <laughs> threw her in and we're like, okay, you've got to do this now. <laughs> and I actually, no, she offered to do it. And I, and I was like, are you sure? She's like, I got this, I got this. <laughs> so... Um, I'm under good good supervision, so hopefully there won't be too many (laughs) mistakes. Uh, I (laughs) remember my first time was so scary because I had to talk and I had to panel, and so that was a lot. That was a lot for me. So I was like kind of talking and I'd be a bit quiet because as when I was doing the paneling, so when I'd be turning the knobs, I'd also go quiet as well so mm. I'd be like playing with the computer and forgetting that actually I'm on air I should be talking oh well <laughs> so that was hard so you've already done a great job <laughs> thank you Lauren's not here with oh. us where is she she for some reason she thinks she has other important things mm. that she needs to do such as a friend's wedding in India and that somehow takes precedence over being in here with us this morning we see you girl we see you <laughs> We hope that you will come back yes. eventually. And we hope you're having a lovely time yes. as well. So we might jump into some news for the week. Ahead to Mimi, the 16-year-old Palestinian girl who has been charged with assault and incitement of an IDF soldier in December last year is a story that is gaining international attention. Protests have taken place in Europe and the US and in Australia, the Senator for Tasmania, Lisa Singh, has spoken out in Parliament. Ahed slapped an armed Israeli soldier. She's being charged with, with 12 offences, which could carry a sentence of 12 years in prison. The Israeli military court system has a 99.7% conviction rate for Palestinians. Mm. A story that we have been following quite closely at Tuesday Breakfast uh, is of a trans sex worker, CJ Palmer, who has been sentenced to six years in a male prison. She has not been convicted. She has been convicted of grievous bodily harm for transmitting HIV. She has not had access to necessary hormone treatment in the last 300 days. She has served in a high-security male prison. It is unclear as to whether she will receive hormones during her six-year sentence. Mm. The Star Observer quoted Nick Hollis, co-founder of the HIV Advocacy Service, who commented that his heart is broken. He stated that this is an absolute miscarriage of justice for a six-year sentence. I think it's completely excessive, and I, along with many people in the community, have deep, grave concerns for CJ's health and well-being, especially since since she's been denied her hormone treatments. 
He also commented that the criminalization of people with HIV is ineffective and serves only to further stigmatize and discriminate against those living with HIV. If you would like to show support for CJ, you can lobby the prison to get CJ's hormone treatment available to her and start writing letters to CJ in prison to show her your support. We will post on our Facebook page about how to do so. Despite the UN 30-day ceasefire resolution, fighting continues in Ghouta, where more than 500 people, mostly civilians, have been killed in the last week. Rebel groups fighting Bashar al-Assad's loyal forces agreed to implement the truce. However, they vowed to respond to any attacks. Airstrikes have slowed since the resolution. However, the inability to stop the fighting completely calls into question the UN's authority in the region. A new study published by the Council to Homeless Persons finds that high housing costs and stagnating wages are forcing more working people into homelessness. The analysis shows that over 20,000 employed Australians sought the support of homelessness services between 2016 and 17, which is a rise of nearly 30% from the 2013 to 14 period. The Australian Bureau of Statistics released wage data last week, which found that wages grew by just 2.1% last year, while housing costs grew by 3.4% in the same period. Mm. Pat Dodson, um, Yaru Labor Senator for Western Australia, has spoken out against Malcolm Turnbull on his rejection of a bipartisan Indigenous voice model to establish a constitutionally enshrined representative body of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. A poll conducted by NewsPoll published last Tuesday has found that the majority of Australians support the model. However, Turnbull has come out saying that the idea is inconsistent with democracy, which should allow for all national representative institutions to be available to all Australians. Dodson has commented that this is a call for justice, not one group being privileged beyond others. And lastly, Australian fashion company Moga are re-releasing their limited edition Pride headscarves for the 40th anniversary of the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. The company's founder, Azan Muna, stated that the company's love and adoration towards the LGBTQIA community is strong, and we have designed a limited edition rainbow-striped pride scarf in honour of their strength, bravery and inclusive spirit, she reported. And they will be sending one to Tony Abbott, the fierce opposer of marriage equality. What a shock for him, Muslim (laughs) and queer. Yes. I wonder how he's he's going (laughs) to respond to that one. Oh, could you just imagine? Oh my God, he would he he would lose. Yeah, he would lose his shit. Yeah, he'd lose it definitely, definitely. Um, yeah. So, what, what do you have lined up? Because I know you always have the best music. Um, yes, I do have some music. I just discovered a really beautiful song this week. Oh, it's by an artist called Madison McFerrin. No, not familiar. Local. I don't. I have to look that up. Maybe we okay. can share that after the song. That I'm not actually good. sure. Um, but this tune is called Insane. And that was Madison McFerrin with a song called Insane. We were just looking up in the break about where she's from. She's a Brooklyn-based singer-songwriter, producer, and she's actually the daughter of legend Bobby McFerrin. So there you go. Definitely one to check out.
Did you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call the station on 9419 8377. 3CR, the perfect companion in your car on your road trip. You can stream radio straight into your car. Straight in. Like 3CR gets streamed straight into your car. Keeping you company, no matter where you're going or what you're doing, you'll have something interesting in your ear. That's correct. And you can Bluetooth it and you can just stick it right into you. Yes. <laughs> any kind of attachment you want. <laughs> to subscribe to 3CR, unwaged is $35. Yes. yes. Wage? 75 And solidarity? 150 $150. That's pretty reasonable to help keep 3CR on air. Call 3CR 94198377 and... Subscribe. Subscribe today. Subscribe now. When I'm on a road trip, I want to take 3CR with me and listen to Rock and Roll. One day, I'm going to understand... That was Zion with our favourite, our homegirl, um, Lauren Hill, who we just love on Tuesday breakfast. <laughs> She's the best. She she is amazing. Um, so if she ever comes down to Melbourne again, um, which she probably won't, let's 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 go see her if she comes down to Melbourne. That would be incredible. She played at the at a festival in Queensland, I think, or she was going to play. Mm. Um, but I don't think she was doing any sideshows, you know, unfortunately. And the thing is, she's notorious as well for um, coming on late or really? cancelling. Yeah, that's the thing. So if you do get a chance to see her, um, you you would be one of the lucky uh, few. Incredible. All right. So we'll, we thought we'd do alternative news early. Um, there's an article that I read in The Guardian called Lives in Limbo. Public housing residents face eviction in Victoria. It's by Denim Sadler. It was on, um, this article was written up on Sunday, I think. Well, I mean, they did publish it on Sunday. So it talks about um, how people are still unsure as to what's happening with the renewal project. So the renewal project, um, housing renewal project, started a while, a while ago. So it, the first, so essentially what it is is that public land will be sold off um, to private developers and the idea is that the private developers will add an additional 10% of social housing. So what will happen is that the flats will be demolished, 
they'd be re- they'll be rebuilt again um in supposedly a better condition because because these are like the we're talking about the 50s and 60s flats so they will be rebuilt and sort of more sustainable yeah um so on and so forth but the that's the idea but what what we've seen in other areas like Carlton and Kensington who were the first they were the first um uh, i guess they were the guinea pigs of the renewal project um from what i hear not everyone got to move back and people who are currently affected so um people living in Clifton Hill um the walk ups in Flemington there's been six areas that have been earmarked for um demolition so the government is saying actually everybody can move back and there will be an increase so an increase of 10% but what ends up happening is that yes they will rebuild the flats but then they will rebuild one or two uh, like one one to two bedroom apartments so currently there's like three and four so what will happen is that people really won't be able to move back and where can people go in the meantime um so what's happening is that they will be relocated but the idea is that the relocation um there's no guarantee that you'll be relocated to a similar place so let's say your children are going to school in Carlton if you're relocated to sunshine you've cut off that child's yeah you know um ties with community ties with their school so um the relocation is basically I think you're given one or two options but what people forget is that you're um breaking up communities it's this idea that they don't see people who live in flats as having community so this isn't just people being physically relocated they're being emotionally relocated they're mm. being you know um they're having all they have a community and now what you're essentially saying is um you know you just live in this um like physical building uh, like this physical space but you have no community connection like that hasn't been um argued very well like no one has um talked about what it will do emotionally to communities um you know cuz a lot of people have grown up in the flats and have lived there since they were really young to adulthood so now you're completely ira- not erasing that but you're cutting that off and now you're just putting them like you don't have a you really don't have a say where you get to move so they're not consulted at all and they've done um public consultations but the key issue in this article that it talks about is that it's the information isn't very um it's it's very basic so um they they say oh yeah everyone can move back um um this is this so they've given them a very basic understanding of what what will happen but there's no information there's no government information about former tenants so the tenants who were the first renewal who, who were part of the first renewal project so we don't know what happened to the residents in Carlton there's no uh, data out there and when did do you know when that started when that first project happened so it was, i think it was Kensington mm. we were the so i went through that so i live in Carlton and the Carlton flats were demolished and not every not everybody returned we were thankful to return because we were on a priority list i guess depending on your needs and and so on so thankfully we were able to move back but they originally wanted us to move to Kensington and we had a feeling that 
there would be no argument for us to to be able to move back because the Kensington is still considered in a city. So we thought they might say, oh, um, you know, Kensington is fine. It's in a city. Uh, what's the problem? You're just going to stay there. So we were like, look, move us into another flat in Carlton and we will stay there in the meantime. So I think my family was savvy um, in that they didn't trust the government. <laughs> So there was Very sort of wise. like, yeah, there was sort of like, oh, okay, Kensington sounds nice and everything, but we want to stay in Carlton, yeah. and you said we were going to move back, so we'll just wait. And when back. they and when they rebuilt it, was it much better than what no, it was it's, before? It's it's not. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? No, because I do miss because there was so many of us. Now it feels like there's more private residents than there are public residents. Um, so no, I don't think it was worth it. Um, sustainably, I don't think it's sustainable. Um, there's more surveillance. There's a bigger police presence. Mm. Um, it's just, and now there's like, Carlton used to be a place where you could, well, where I live, um, used to be a place where the families would come out, you know, there'd be a big park and people would sit outside. And now there's like bike lanes for residents, from other areas in Carlton, so there's like bike lanes in the middle of the flats, right? Oh, so I think I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, kids will be playing around, and there's like cyclists um, speeding past. So there's no resting area. It just feels like there's the flats. If you come outside, there's no like it doesn't. It's it's a temporary, not temporary. What am I saying? It's sort of like. But it's affected the the cohesion. Yeah, the, the, co- the cohesion is a good word. Yeah. That's what it's affected. So you just sort of feel like when you walk outside the flat, before when you walked outside, you had, there was benches for people. Like there are still benches, but it's like benches that aren't comfortable. Like everything has been created to mm-hmm. um, where it prevents people from lounging, where yeah. it prevents people from like, having a picnic it's very there isn't much room there isn't much like grass space and it sounds like they haven't really tried to consult with the communities living there to work out what how they want the space to be and they've created this environment that isn't really appealing at all at all like there's no consult there was consultations but everything we asked was like shot down so Right now, the way they're selling it is sort of like, oh, you know, these flats are going to look um, aesthetically better. It's going to, um, you know, like, you know, um, it's it's basically what they're saying is currently it looks like crap. And once it's rebuilt, like it will boost your self-esteem because now you live in an area where it's pretty and, you know, now you'll be more confident walking out of the flats. And it's sort of like... Okay, and social mixing, they was, that's another selling point where they said that if there was private residence next to public residence, that somehow it would boost our morale and that we would, it would, so we would sort of be emulating their behavior, sort of like we live near um, private residence and now, you know, yeah, we see them going to work so that, that you know, that will force us to run into the house uh, and, and grab a briefcase. <laughs> do, 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 do you know what I mean? It's just, it's so messed up. Yeah. Um, but I don't know anyone, I don't recall anyone having any social stigma and that's, that's another thing that they were trying to trump up saying, you know, it will make people 
more confident because right now people feel embarrassed living in public housing estates and I don't recall that at all. That was never a thing of ours. Like that's never that was never a concern of ours. Mm. So um yeah. So the, this article discusses. Sorry, I, I completely no, no, w- went I off the article. It's so important. Um, to, yeah, to so, share so that it's just yeah. It talks. It's saying pretty much that um people haven't really been updated and that um there's currently a inquiry in the upper house into the renewal program. And that it was uh, instigated by the Greens. Um, yeah, so, so now I think Clifton Hill, this article is focused more on Clifton Hill. And Clifton Hill is just another area. Because Clifton Hill, I think, is the, it, it's one of the apartments that are going to, I think they're the f- ones that are going to be first um, looked at. Mm-hmm. So I think they're the um, more current ones, if if if, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I think they might be earmarked for demolition real soon, where the others might be a, a year in time or two years in time. So there's right. the focus on them. But, yeah, I mean, it still hasn't changed from when I moved out, from when we had our flats um, demolished. There wasn't much information then. There's not much information now. So, um, yeah, it will be interesting to follow and see what's happening. Yep, definitely a story to keep a lookout for. Um, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast, Breakfast at 3CR. It's 7.28, and when we come back from the break, we'll be speaking with Emma Lennox from our Deputy Chair of Liberty Victoria's Rights Advocacy Project about their new Confident Commuter website. Able-bodied Australia does not realise that people with disabilities across the board are being discriminated against. Then the government to demand that we go out and get a job without removing the disincentives like the lack of access to transport and community infrastructure, without providing accessible buildings that can provide barrier-free employment. I'm not getting a fair go and I don't like it and I'm saying so. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55 on the AM dial. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Done By Law, brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Racier, the perfect companion in your car on your road trip. You can stream radio straight into your car. Straight in. Like, 3CR gets streamed straight into your car. Keeping you company, no matter where you're going or what you're doing, you'll have something interesting in your ear. That's correct. And you can Bluetooth it, and you can just stick it right into you. (laughs) Is any kind of attachment you want? (laughs) To subscribe to 3CR, unwaged is $35. Yes. Waged? $75. And solidarity? One pity. One pity. That's pretty reasonable to help keep 3CR on air. 
Call 3CR 9419 and... Subscribe. Subscribe today. Subscribe now. When I'm on a road trip, I want to take 3CR with me and listen to Rock and Roll. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast. You're listening to Ayan and George. Lauren is currently away. She's in India for a friend's wedding. So, um, yeah, we're sending our love and um, hoping that she's having a great time. Um, uh, next to me um, is Emma Buckley-Lennox. Emma Buckley-Lennox, she's from Liberty, Victoria, and she is part of the Rights Advocacy Project. Good morning. Good morning with Lauren as well. Lauren oh, is also yeah. on the steering committee of RAP as well. Yes. So I can be her fill-in for a little exactly. bit. <laughs> let's let's, let's, let's do that. Who knows? Can you kind of put on her personality and everything? Oh, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> Although I just got my fringe cut, so, you know, you I've go. got the fringe. The Obviously, it doesn't work on <laughs> radio, but no. I have the same fringe. You're yeah. already well, being taken over. But I not, love that. No, nothing can ever replace no, Lauren. No, definitely. She's irreplaceable, <laughs> like B. Um, so before we look at the Confident Commuter website, can mm-hmm. you tell us about Rights Advocacy Project? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it, Liberty Victoria's Rights Advocacy Project, or RAP as we call it, is a community of uh, young lawyers and young activists. Um, but what we do each year is we train a group, we recruit and train a group of young lawyers and activists in strategic advocacy. Um, and we put them in groups and um, ask them to take on or think about law reform projects that they could undertake. Um, that can be, uh, you know, anything from a report to an event to something that um, I created when I was uh, doing the program, uh, which is a website. So the website that I initially we, I created with a couple of other people was called mikeyfines.org.au and mm-hmm. this was in 2016 when it launched. Uh, we still had on-the-spot penalty fares. Um, yeah, can you tell us about that? Yeah. I mean, fi- the fines... People aren't being fined fined anymore? Well, basically, so on-the-spot penalty fares were a trial uh, Mm. that was implemented by the Napthine government in 2014. Um, They were meant to stop... Uh, also, they were meant to penalise fare evaders or recidivist fare evaders mm. by making them pay $75 or giving the, op- the option to pay $75 on the spot or to pay the $228, I think, dollar or $27 fine mm. later on. The thing with the penalty fare, it actually wasn't a, technically a fine, was that you couldn't review it and it was completely anonymous. So there were lots of reports of people being bullied into taking it. You know, we didn't know who who was getting fined, the circumstances mm. under which they were getting fined. Uh, you couldn't pay with cash. You could only pay on cards. So that was going to be prohibitive for some people. And it was just like a, a system by which you, it was almost like this extortion, like pay us, you know, pay mm. us $75 now. We won't make you pay more later. Mm. So... Um, at RAP, we were really opposed to it, um, and so as part of that, we created a website to help people understand whether or not they should choose the $75 penalty fare or the, the fine, basically to see if they had an ability to appeal the fine through the internal review process, which is you know, a proper process by which we should be able, you know, we shouldn't be kind of saying that people are guilty mm. of something before we've gone through proper processes. Um, so that that was why we created MikeyFines.org.au in 2016. Uh, and then, about a month and a half later, the Victorian government announced that they would be scrapping on the spot penalty fees. Oh. And so we were like, yes, we reformed the law. So do you think that the website had an impact? I think so, that? absolutely. Like, there was a lot of other people saying what we were saying, um, but we were really stoked with that. And it meant, But it meant that our old website, Mikey Fines, was redundant from the 1st of January 2017. And I was mm. 
um, you know, because the program, the RAP program, when you're part of it, runs for a year. We kind of done our year, and I was involved in the steering committee, um, kind of finishing up my law degree, being like, oh, I just don't have time to yeah, update it. And then absolutely. we got a few emails, like we got a stream of emails from people saying, hey, I really love your website. Are you going to update it? Because we said, hey, sorry, it's redundant. We were too successful. You know? <laughs> I mean, we did our job. So. Exactly, exactly. So, um, so. I remember actually it was like almost exactly a year ago from when we launched Confident Commuter last week. I got an email from this guy called Adam saying, hey, like you need to, like basically like you need to update your website. My friends use it a lot and they find it really comforting, especially when talking to ticket inspectors. So that's when I was like, okay, got to do it. Mm. And um, we applied for a grant from the Victoria Law Foundation, which um, gives out kind of different size grants depending on the project. And we were successful, which was great. But it meant that we could pay me, we could pay um, a web developer and pay a graphic designer and um, kind of do it, do it really properly. Because the first iteration of Mike, or Mikey Finds, we we um, did it with $300. So wow. yeah, this time we've, we've kind of done it properly. We've got it so that um, if the law does change in the future, um, it's really easy for someone like me to update the website, whereas yeah. before it was all entirely coded. And I was like, I'll learn how to code. <laughs> Very difficult, actually. So You can't code that. on the run. <laughs> no, definitely not. Definitely not. So um, that's why we created Confident Commuter, which we launched uh, last week. Hey, congrats. Yeah. Congrats. Yeah. So Confident Commuter, we were having a look at the yeah, website and we were before. so impressed with just the layout of it, it's so crisp, yep. it's colourful, it's like plain English. Um, <laughs> was that a priority of yours to make it that accessible? Absolutely. Um, for something that should be simple, like a Mikey ticketing system or the mm. Mikey fine system, it is so complicated. And that's because you've got la- so many different layers of organisations and government slash, you know, private entities. So, you know, Mikey is, is, is um, something that's uh, run by a private corporation um and you know yarra trams is and so is um you know metro and all the buses but and so the authorized officers are all employed sorry ticket inspectors that's how complicated it is they mm. call them authorized officers when everyone else would just be like it's a ticket inspector the euphemism exactly <laughs> exactly um so yeah we wanted to try and make it dis- distill all of that complexity down to simple language that was kind of the first priority and also you know i guess the dual t- first priorities are like make sure it's legally correct as well so we read through the, um, the government so what, uh, as well as the changes to removing penalty fares they also made a lot of really good changes to um the actual uh, ticketing and um, fine system so for example they increased it from it taking 24 hours to t- to top up online once you've done it you know onto your mikey card uh to 90 minutes which is better than nothing it's still not great mm. but it's better than 24 hours yeah. uh, you still can't top up on trams uh if you have one of the gray mikey cards you'll notice it does not tell you what type of mikey it is so pe- lots of people we get emails all the yeah. time from people being caught out picking up their kids mikey or their siblings mikey or their it's old yeah the their time, old student yeah. mikey or something and using it not realizing that they're not they shouldn't be using it um so there are still lots of issues um but but in making the the new website we were really lucky to be um to get uh, the help of um, General Assembly's User Experience Pro Bono program. So they run a 12-week user experience course for people, um, which is 
user experience design is basically how do I make this thing most user fr- the, you know the most user friendly it mm. can be um, and so we um, we got uh, four students from that in their last four weeks of class or last three weeks of class to work on it full time so it was so so lucky to get their help they were um, absolute stars they you know were so passionate about about it I went yeah. in and talked to them and went off and then they did all these surveys and did all this testing and basically made a prototype for me so mm. it made it so much easier um, and that was part of you know making it the most user-friendly it mm. could be. Um, so, um, yeah, we really hope that it's easy to use. I really like the little cartoon at the yeah, top that's yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, I think it's really cute. I kind of want, want, <laughs> I want one like of me as my like profile picture or something. Um, it's, but, um, yeah, it's a really good example of using the law in a really practical way to empower the public. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and it can be feel really terrifying and punitive, especially ticket inspectors you know I, my mum my mum lives in Brisbane now but when she lived in Melbourne in like the 90s she's always like oh I just used to love the conductors and they'd make you know being on public transport remember them yeah, yeah such a nice experience because everyone is talking you know you're going to buy your ticket from them and instead now it's like almost completely the reverse we have these people that whose job it is to to find people mm-hmm. um and and yeah, and, and it's led and to the some vests as well. Yeah, the aesthetically, it's just so intimidating. Yeah, yeah exactly. And the, the power trippers, a lot, a lot of them, like they really intimidate. Yeah, people. I've seen them roughing, like getting very handsy on people, and mm. you're like, can they do this? Well, our website actually talks about that. So, mm. so um, you'll notice, like, so basically, there are like three main buttons when you go in, and one of them is, are you about to talk to a ticket inspector, yeah, yeah. or um, are you about to have a, interact with a ticket inspector? And you can say yes or no, I am or I'm not, and it will give you either what you might want to say to them, if, especially if you have been caught without a, a valid ticket and it was an honest mistake, and and then it also has just generally your rights with ticket inspectors because lots of people are really confused. Mm. Uh, it makes sense. The legislation is really confusing. I'm pretty sure it's all in regulations, and then there's also so like a code of conduct, it's very confusing. So we wanted to distill that down to make it easy. So we've got what ticket inspectors can do, what they can't do, and what you can do. Mm. So, for example, things like filming them, taking a picture, those things you're absolutely able to do, and they can't, you know, force you to delete it. I didn't know. That's really That's, good to know. Yeah. So, um, but it's but happening. yeah, exactly, and um. Also, there's this great Facebook group <laughs> that's really helped me in my in in um in developing the that the website. It's called Where Are Your Mates in Melbourne. It's people take yeah, pictures yeah, of or report where ticket inspectors are around Melbourne, which I quite like yeah. Yeah. as well. They've got like twenty five thousand members, so it's a very useful resource as well for me and for everyone else. Mm. Mm. That's incredible. Yeah. Um. And uh, j- just before we uh um wrap up. Outside of confident commuters, where can people go if the um, situation escalates? So if, if they get a letter and they want to dispute it, what type of legal support does... Well, I mean, if they if it's not something that... So I'd first go to confident commuter just because it's it's got... Um, even if you are able to get legal help yeah. in other ways, it also directs you to those other ways. So it would take oh. you through a really step-by-step process. So if there's any flags that say you could be eligible for legal support, either from Victoria Legal Aid, which means tests that support, or from a community legal centre, which is also generally means tested, um, you know, it does kind of flag that for you along the way. So confidentcommuter.org.au is a really good starting point. Um, other other things to know is if you're a uni student, generally your uni will have um, a legal support team that will be able to help you. And really? they, they would be so, you know, well-versed in the area of oh, fines. Wow. Yeah. So most universities in Victoria, if not all of them, have a, a legal team that can help people with fines and things like that. Um, 
there's also Fitzroy Legal Service does a, a free nightly clinic, so mm. not means tested at all. So if, if you do have it and you decide you want to go to court, of course it's a good idea to get legal advice first. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, confidentcommuter.org.au will kind of direct you towards the, the, the place that you might want to be referred mm. to, which for some people, like we had have have had feedback being like, oh, it just refers me to a legal service. But the reason we do that is because that person has indicated that there's some reason that they might need either some extra support yeah. um, or they might el- be eligible for support. So it's important that they reach out and get it. Mm. Um, I Personally, as someone who's worked in community legal centres before, I've seen it when someone who um, has has um, a lot of fines or something like that tries to do it themselves and often it can just really complicate the process. So um, there is help out there for those who are eligible, so it's really important to get it. But in lieu of that, mm. confidentcommuter.org.au. Yes, yes. We'll definitely post it on our Facebook page. We did one. last night. Oh, perfect. Oh, oh, we'll <laughs> Just a little nod. Be like, hey, in case you forgot. Yeah, yeah. yeah thank you so much for coming on Pleasure. Tuesday Breakfast. And um, just can I sneak in one quick question? Yeah. Is, is there anything on the system, any database um, uh, about, like, sort of something that tracks the type of people who get the most fines or... Oh, that's a good question. I don't think there's any data that's put out. It's definitely something you could mm. FOI, like Freedom of Information probably, um, but it would... Uh, I'm not sure if they are able to release some of that information just I've, because of the mm. Privacy Act, which applies to all Victorian government yeah. departments. Because I've noticed that there's an, um, the Melbourne Uni... So in front of oh, Melbourne yeah. Uni, the mm. tram stops, they're always there. And it's always international students yeah, and local students. To catch people uh, because there's the free... Transport section yeah, CBD. Yeah, stops just before yeah. Melbourne Uni. Yeah, yeah um, actually, I know that um, the WACA, yeah. Whistleblowers, Activists Collective Australia, mm-hmm. something like that, um, they are doing some actions. I know Front of the Earth are doing some work around um, the profiling of people. And we've had a few emails from people. Like We had an e- email from someone who said that he thought he was being profiled because he had been asked for a his concession Mikey before they'd even touched his Mikey and he just got off the tra- he just got off the train um got off the train at like Melbourne Central. Um I suspect that when you touch off on the turnstiles there's a different colour that flashes up when you're a concession. Yeah, there's a little light that yeah, comes on and, as you're leaving. Yeah, and I yeah. think it will flash a different colour if you're concession rather than him being profiled. But I don't That's also have no look. idea. Yeah. yeah. I, I always wonder why do they ask me for concession? Yeah, how they do they know, know who ha- has a concession? Oh, yeah, by by the colour so that flashes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's what I suspect happens and I think I remember doing that when I got yeah. to have a concession Mikey yeah. many years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I always feel like there are certain groups that they always target the young the um people of colour. So there's there's people who I feel like are on their radar. I'm, uh, they might not say it, but I'm always like, really? Yeah. Really? And yeah. it would be really interesting to get some data on yes, that. Yes. Yeah. It, it would be. It would be. Um, thank you so much no once worries. again for coming on. We'll Pleasure. have Emma. all the information up on our system. And if you're tuning in, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with Ayan and George. The time is, is that the right time? 7.45? Yeah, I so. No, so it's the weather that's actually the, the wrong Ah, uh, 14 oh, I degrees was, as well. Yeah. What, is it 14 degrees still? It was like 15 degrees when I was coming in here. <laughs> was it? Yeah. Oh, oh God, I'm not really in the mood to leave this <laughs> station. And we will be back after some CSAs. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Militantly, never you fear. Erosion of human rights, 
leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our right because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Help 3CR support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our song line and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care and also others... The recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. Hi, I'm Maurice. And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically, Chronically Chilled. A program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. Able-bodied Australia does not realise that people with disabilities across the board are being discriminated against. Then the government to demand that we go out and get a job without removing the disincentives like the lack of access to transport and community infrastructure, without providing accessible buildings that can provide barrier-free employment. I'm not getting a fair go and I don't like it and I'm saying so. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55 on the AM dial. Tuesday breakfast. We're going to go now to an interview with Shana Bremner, who is the founder and director of End Rape on Campus. Hi, Shana, are you there? Yes, I am. Thanks for coming on Tuesday breakfast this morning. Thanks for having me. Um, just quickly, I'm going to give a content warning for this interview as we will be discussing sexual assault and harassment. If you need to tune out, the interview will finish in around 15, 10 to 15 minutes and we will provide some support numbers then as well. So Shana, can you tell us a bit about the End Rape on Campus organisation? Sure. We are a volunteer-run advocacy organisation and we assist students who have been affected by sexual assault and harassment within university communities. And we also lobby for change at campus, state and federal levels. 
Wow, that sounds like a really important organisation and work that you do there. Um, so the Australian Human Rights Commission's report into sexual assault and harassment at universities has now been released. Do you know some of the main points that have come out of that report? One of the things that came out of that report that we think is really important um, is that students don't know how to report to their universities when they do encounter instances of assault and harassment. The universities haven't typically done a very good job of actually sharing that information with students. Students don't know where to go to report those things, but they're also having a lot of trouble getting counselling support on campus as well. So that definitely seems like an issue that needs to be addressed if they don't know uh, how to report those um, instances. Um, it is. It's mm. definitely one of the biggest hurdles that a lot of students have faced. And then when they have reported their assaults or harassment to the university, they've found that it doesn't really do anything. The universities haven't been great at taking action. And so we're working to hopefully change that. Mm. And I just have the stat there from the report that was a 94% of students who are sexually harassed and 87% who are assaulted do not make the formal complaint. So that's a, that's a huge um, portion of that group. It is a huge portion, and it's something that is slowly changing, but we would like to see much, much faster change because we know that for students who are impacted by assault and harassment, their education really suffers. Mm. And we think that everybody has a right to an education that is free from violence, and when it unfortunately does happen we'd like to see the university step up and support those people. Yeah, absolutely. And now a new report has been released called The Red Zone. Can you tell us a bit about that? So The Red Zone is a report um, that looks into orientation weeks, particularly at residences around the country. The main focus of it is the colleges at Sydney University, but we did also examine universities in other states. Um, the Red Zone is typically the week where students are most likely to experience assault and harassment within the colleges. Mm. Uh, the Elizabeth Broderick Review of the UCID colleges actually found that one in eight rapes or attempted rapes takes place within a week at the residential colleges. What, what do you think it is about this hazing that gives rise to this kind of, you know, this sexual assault and harassment? What we found is that the hazing incidents and the sexual assaults are really closely correlated. Um, at colleges where we do see higher instances of hazing or the more extreme forms of hazing, we definitely see more reports of sexual assault. And it's because the hazing practices and assault and harassment are both based in the same thing. They're about power and they're about humiliating people. Mm. And it's a pretty, like, old-fashioned way of, you know, introducing um, students to the university. It's kind of hard to understand why this culture continues. It definitely is. We've heard some of the most bizarre and horrifying stories coming out of some of the colleges with the hazing. And one of the things that we've noticed is that the students who are involved in these things don't necessarily see them as strange or weird or even potentially dangerous, whereas students who didn't go to the colleges do see them that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, that makes sense that it would be normalised in that, in that college culture. Um, it's incredibly normalised. Do, um, do you think that... Oh, sorry, uh, one of the recommendations of, uh, I think, the report was that it should be made illegal. Do you think that that is a, a useful way of proceeding? 
We've seen in the US where various states have different laws around hazing that the states where hazing is illegal, they have had success at stamping it out. We're hoping that we can find a way to hold the institutions accountable because while those individual acts constitute crimes and could be reported, nobody is actually holding the colleges or the universities accountable for failing to stamp it out. Mm, and then I guess there's also the risk that the the activities will continue um, and that people, you know, will sort of go underground and, and this stuff will still happen even if it is made That's illegal. Definitely true. And we know that a lot of people are really reluctant to come forward and report these things because the backlash that they encounter is incredible. Mm. Um, and this is where they live. Colleges are their homes and there's no escape for a lot of people. It's where they are 24-7 when they're you know, not in classes. They're usually at college. Mm. And if you come forward and speak out about things that have happened there that made you uncomfortable or actually hurt you in some way, the backlash can be really swift and really, really fierce. Mm. And so in terms of other strategies, um, it, it does seem like some universities have already started to do some uh, t- sorts of training around consent. Do you think that programs to educate university students uh, before they do the, you know, before they go into these hazing rituals could be a useful way to address the issue? I think so. We'd really like to see students in high school starting to get this training, starting to talk about it, and we know that some of them are. But for a lot of kids, if you're getting the training when you're getting to university, it might be a little bit too late. Some of them have you know, had these ideas and we've seen surveys come out about young people's thoughts around respectful relationships and sexual assault and we know that there's a major cultural shift that needs to happen and it needs to start happening a little bit earlier. Mm. It is great to see consent training being rolled out at universities but that's only part of the solution to this. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point that it has to start from a young age and it could be a bit too late to bring this education in when people have already, you know, they've already made up their minds in, in um, a lot of ways about these issues. Um, do you yeah, think that and they the, are really deeply oh, yeah, ingrained. Yeah. Um, do you think that the Me Too campaign uh, has influenced uh, your organisation and is this a time particularly when people are ready to listen seriously to address sexual assault and harassment within institutions such as universities? We have seen an increase in students coming forward since the Me Too campaign. Uh, we've been doing this work at Rape on Campus Australia for several years now before the Me Too campaign kind of blew up on social media, I guess. Um, but we definitely do see whenever there's a major media story happening, you know, when we saw the coverage of Craig McLaughlin and Don Burke recently, mm. we definitely get an increase in people coming forward because it's a safety and numbers thing. Once people have seen that one person has been believed, they feel a lot more comfortable coming forward. Yeah, and it's great to see this issue gaining momentum. Um, I've been looking on your website. It seems like you've got lots of um, great, a lot of great information, and particularly uh, you go through all the different universities and talk about uh, the links to counselling services or other pieces of information about how they deal with sexual assault and uh, harassment. So that was really great to see. Oh, thank you. What we found, I guess, was that most students didn't know where to find that information. And I sat down one day and thought, well, let's put it all together on a website 
And I was appalled to see how long it took me to actually find a lot of that stuff at the oh, uni. Really? You know, yeah. it should be something that's relatively easy and straightforward to find. But on average, it was taking me two hours per university. Wow. And I'm a person who knows what they're looking for, knows the right terms to search, and isn't dealing with trauma. Mm. So if you're a person who you know, assault has happened to, and you're dealing with the trauma of that at the same time, I imagine that finding that information would have been so much harder. So we thought if we could put it all in one place, it could be a really handy resource for some people. Yeah, it's kind of baffling, though, because I think we often think of universities as these very progressive places, and and that I'd imagine that they would, would be at the forefront of a lot of these sorts of, you know, being on top of these kinds of issues. So it's quite disappointing to see how far behind they are. It is. It's something that... You know, I've been doing this work with my friends in the US um, for quite some time now and when we started doing the work in Australia, I really naively thought that our universities might be a little bit better at handling it than they had been in the US. We didn't have the same sorts of alumni funding to shore up that American colleges do by keeping these things quiet and we don't have the same funding through college sports like they do in the US. So I thought that our universities would be a little bit more open, that they would handle these things much better than they actually did. And it was really disappointing to find out just how wrong I was. Mm. So, Shana, we might wrap up, but I've got one last question. How can people get involved in support of this issue? One of the things that we're doing um, at the moment is we've joined with Fair Agenda, another advocacy organisation, and the Hunting Ground Australia Project and the National Union of Students to call for a federal task force. Colleges and the universities have shown time and time again that they aren't really willing to step up and fix the problem in the way that they should be. And so we're calling on the federal government to actually set up a task force to monitor how the universities are responding, to share information with the public that isn't readily available at the moment. We'd love it if everyone could sign the petition. That's Mm -hmm. at www.fairagenda.org at the moment, we need to put the pressure on. We need somebody to do something and we're hoping that the government will step in. We'll um, we'll share that link on our Facebook page. Thank you so much for uh, for speaking with us today, Shana. It is such important work that you do and we will continue to look at what the NREP on campus organisation does in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So if you found any of the content in this interview distressing, please call the Sexual Assault Crisis Line on 1-800-806-292 or CASA on 9635-3610. Hi, I'm Maurice. And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically Chilled, a program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm.
And that was Shoeba Mud with a tune called Masked. And before that, in the bracket, we played Emma Donovan and the Putbacks, um, her fantastic song, Black Woman. Now we're going to go to an interview with Dr. Adrian O'Neill, who is the University of Melbourne's Melbourne School of Population Health um, Senior Research Fellow and a Heart Foundation Future Leader about the link between gender and cardiovascular disease. Hi, Adrian. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much to, for coming on the show today. It's a pleasure. Can you tell us a bit about the paper, Gender, Sex as a Social Determinant of Cardiovascular Risk? Yes, certainly. Um, so the American Heart Association actually featured a special edition in February this year. Um, so this month's edition um, called uh, was really centred around this campaign um, called the Go Red for Women um, campaign, and it's really designed to raise awareness of um, research um, into looking at women, specifically women's risk um, for cardiovascular disease. And so we were lucky enough to have our, pa- our paper featured in that, um, in that edition. So what we really know about cardiovascular disease is that more people are living with heart disease specifically than ever before. So while survival rates have improved over recent decades because of things like medication advances and surgical procedures really improving people's survival, that it's still the number one killer of um, men and women. And that was quite staggering. I didn't realise that until reading um, reading your paper. Yeah, that's right. So I think that there is a bit of a conception, particularly with women, that um, cancers are, and particularly breast cancer, for example, is the number one killer. But in fact, it's cardiovascular disease, and and the burden of that disease for women is actually greater than all of the cancers combined. And so while we're seeing, um, as I mentioned before, while we're seeing really great advancements in survival rates for people that do actually have a heart attack, we're actually seeing one group that is suffering the worst outcomes than ever before, and that's young women aged between 35 and 54, and that's actually the age group to which I belong, so I feel sort of quite strongly about um, about advancing this particular area of public health and, and drawing attention to it, because I think, as you've just pointed out, a lot of people don't realise that... Um, that cardiovascular disease is the number one killer. Mm. And Adrian, your paper focuses specifically on gender. What are the different factors of socialisation that might place women at risk of cardiovascular disease? Yeah, sure. So I think previously there was this assumption, which was actually backed up by evidence that women tended to be biologically protected from cardiovascular disease. So it's very much having a heart attack was traditionally sort of perceived to be very much a man's disease. Um, And there was some evidence that because of things like estrogen production, which can lead to better good cholesterol stores, that women were protected at least up until menopause from, say, having a heart attack. Now, we've actually seen women's rates um, increase in recent years, as I mentioned before, and we think that it's to do with things like lifestyle-related factors like obesity, like juggling work-family life balance, like physical inactivity. And what we argue in this paper is that because such a focus has been placed on biology as a sort of protective factor um, in women, 
that we actually need to be looking at the way that we're raising boys and girls in early life that goes on to affect their, their heart attack risk. And we tend to sort of think about, when we think about preventing heart disease, we usually tend to think about things like lowering one's cholesterol or lowering their blood pressure. We really don't tend to think about something like gender as actually mm-hmm. being modifiable. But when we look at critical points in our lifespan, we can really start to see that the way that we're raising boys and girls to teach them about health behaviours, for example, can go on to alter their risk of having a heart attack. And we provide some examples in our papers about um, physical inactivity and mobility, for example, things like the environment which we create um, can either help or hinder a girl or a woman's risk of moving in, in society. So, for example, going for a run in the park or, or riding a bike through the city, there's all sorts of sort of environmental factors which can contribute to health behaviours in, um, in, in the early stages of their lifespan. Yeah, and there were so many really um, important points that were raised. I thought particularly um, the area of socialisation in, uh, in where women are doing, uh, having that triple burden where they do the unpaid work in the home, they're working out in the workforce, they're doing the emotional labour, perhaps also caring for their parents, um, and all of these things that could you know, be very stressful for them and, and how that might be related to their cardiovascular health. Absolutely. And so we'd, we'd view this as a sort of a cumulative burden. Um, and, you know, viewing the way in which women's roles really have changed both in um, the domestic sphere and the public sphere, as well as men's. Um, but when we talk about sort of the cumulative risk, stress is a really potent risk factor for having a heart attack. And so that's very well established. What's probably less clear is, um, the, I guess, the different roles, competing interests, I suppose, which which um, have that cumulative risk. So one thing that has um, garnered a lot of interest in cardiovascular research over the last few decades is the role of work stress. And particularly with men, we know that this combination of what we call um, high demand and low control in one's job is very important and a potent risk factor for having a heart attack. So it basically means that if you have a job which is very, very demanding but you don't have a lot of say in what you do in your day-to-day position, that has um, implications for your cardiovascular health. Now, for women, it's there's emerging research which shows that things like, and this is really important, obviously in the um, current climate, in the Me Too kind of context and and highlighting the the risk associated with uh, harassment, for example. So there is evidence that workplace harassment, for example, is really cardiotoxic. For women, it tends to have a persistent effect on women's health, even after being removed from a workplace, for example, which might have um, exposure to harassment. We also know that bad relationships in averted commas um, has some cardiovascular effects as well, both on, say, for example, domestic violence. Um, there's evidence of uh, victimisation having really significant effects on things like blood pressure, um, stress markers like cortisol, for example, um, and also on perpetrators as well. So there's this really emerging field that, um, that the who we work with play with and live with are really important um, predictors of cardiovascular disease. Mm. 
And that factor is particularly important around intimate partner violence and also trauma and how they can be chronic stresses. Um, Absolutely. And so in acknowledging that uh, gender does have an impact on cardiovascular disease, do we need public health strategies and awareness campaigns to target men and women differently? Yeah, absolutely. So really, st- and that's something that is um, a theme in this Go Red for Women edition of um, the journal um, called Circulation, and that is that sex-specific um, campaigns are, are really critical. So um, just to really acknowledge that the changing face of women's and men's roles within society contribute to different trajectories of health. Some really interesting studies coming out of Scandinavia as well that show things like better gender equality have better health outcomes, for example, on things like cognition, which is really, really interesting. So I think it's also about public health strategies changing the way that we treat gender as fixed and innate and that it's something biological which, um, you know, can't be modified. And really, we argue that moving forward, we really need to change this thinking and appreciate how things like socialisation and structural issues can really impact upon men's and women's health differently um, and that this is really the, the, the thing to target going forward. And so does this also suggest that we need to look more closely into other biological and social determinants such as ethnicity, socioeconomic position alongside gender and also for people that exist outside the gender binary and trans and gender diverse people who are marginalised in society and who experience a lot of discrimination and look at the impact that, that, um, that their experience is having on their health? Yeah, there's no doubt that there's interaction effects. When we, when we look at health, we, we know that there's interaction between, um, biology, socialization, culture, all of those things, which, as we know from an intersectional point of view, really have a cumulative effect on health. So, um, and this absolutely stands true with cardiovascular disease as well and I think it's fair to say that really a more traditional a conservative approach has been used in probably medical research more broadly when we think about gender um, as not just being a binary concept anymore. Um, there has been a lot of work that's been done in the role of ethnicity and cardiovascular risk but really much more from again a biological and genetic point of view. So I think everything that we argue around gender and the um, and, and gender being a, a, a social construct also um, holds when we talk about things like ethnicity um, and sexuality. Mm. It's such important work in linking uh, people's social experiences to their health. So thank you so much for uh, joining us on the program today, Adrian. It's a pleasure. So that was Adrian O'Neill, who is uh, University of Melbourne's Melbourne School of Population Health Senior Research Fellow and who spoke with us about the links between gender and cardiovascular health. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law, 6pm Tuesdays.
Help FreeCR support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline, and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care, and also others. The recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years, and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. So that was Yiri Yiri Boom. That's the title of the song and the artist is known as Pedro. Yeah, and um, we had some amazing interviews today. Yes, we did. heard at 7.35 from Emma Lennox. Um, she is the Deputy Chair of Liberty Victoria's Rights Advocacy Project, and we talked to her about her website, Confident Commuter. Um, we'll put up the link again on our Facebook website, but it's just basically um, a, a website that helps people um, navigate the MyKey system, what to do if you've got fines, how to dispute fines, and so on. And there's also a really good um, link that they've provided for um, legal advocacy. So once you, I guess the website teach, shows you how to get to that legal advocacy. Um, and who did we hear from 755? So then we spoke to Shana Bremner, our founder of Endrape on Campus, about the work that they're doing there. And lastly, we spoke to Dr. Adrian O'Neill about the links between gender and cardiovascular disease. Yes, I hope you had a good time chatting to us. Next week, there's also the International Women's Day special, so check out all the breakfast shows. And on Thursday, there'll be an um, International Women's Day breakfast special at 7 a.m. with more amazing content. See you next week.